Um, if you were here two weeks ago, um, you heard me tell a pitiful story about growing up deprived of Mexican food, um, uh, if you remember that. I've got an equally um, pitiful story for you today, particularly if you're from Michigan. Afterwards, you'll think that I was raised in uh, Never Neverland or something. Um, here's, here's the deal. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in Ohio, and um, and and my grandfather had a farm in in southern Ohio. And so in November, I'd go with my dad and my uncle, and with my brothers in laws, and would always go to Grandpa's farm and go hunting. We'd hunt for for rabbits and pheasant and quail. More times than not, we didn't really get anything. We'd just walk in the farm. But but that was my hunting experience. When I was growing up, I I didn't really have any friends that were um, that hunted deer. And so it was that, you know, that just the closest I ever got was going someplace where I saw a deer head mounted on the wall. You know, that, that, that was really just kind of it. Um, we moved to, to Maryland, um, uh, a long time ago and became really good friends with the, with our neighbors across the street that uh, our families kind of joined together. Their daughter was like a part of our family. And, and my, my buddy Joe actually had, uh, he had a place out in West Virginia, a couple hours outside of Washington, D.C., that he would go with his buddies and hunt every year. And he'd, he'd, he'd always take deer with, you know, with, with a, a rifle. He'd take deer with a bow. He'd, he'd bring all kinds of stuff back. And he would say to us, oh, I got venison. You want some venison? And Deb and I would say, uh, mm, no, thanks. And Joe would say, no, it's really good. You, you just got to taste it. And we'd say, mm, no, that's really okay. But they were really good friends. And so um, one fall... Um, we're eating together and Joe brings over some chili and says, you got to try this chili. It's venison chili. And I, you know, I love Joe. Joe's my buddy. So I humor him and, and Deb finally took a little bite and she said, Joe, never bring that to my house again, please. <laughs> it was like, not, not at all. I, I ate a little bit and it was kind of Okay, it was very gamey, um, and it stayed with me longer than I wanted it to. Uh, you know, it, I, it just kind of there. But Joe would all the time say, "Oh, you want venison?" No, not at all. So for the next twenty years, venison not even an option really in our house. Even we knew people who had it. So we moved to Michigan, and um, and we're up at the cottage. And, um, and our next door neighbors at the cottage, um, all of them hunt that, you know, the, the kids all have gotten deer, dads got deers, they've got the pictures on Facebook, the whole deal. So we're up there one day and, and Scott and Jenny come over and, and say, Hey, have you guys had dinner? And we said, well, yeah, we had something. He said, Oh, I got some, I got, I have some venison sirloin tips coming off the grill. Do you want some? And Deb said, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of quick. And, and I said, oh, you know, I like Scott and Jenny. Yeah, yeah, I'll try some. You know, just to taste, I'll try some. So they brought me some over and I ate it and I thought, this is really good stuff. And so, and so we began this process that, um, if I can say it, kind of what happens now when they, when they have a, a, a whole host of people at their cottage and they're doing sirloin tips, um, I just happen to be around. And what, um, you know, what doesn't get eaten, I end up 
having a plate of, which is kind of fun. So a couple of weeks ago, somebody here at North Point, uh, Jeff Pollock, says to me, calls me on the phone. He says, hey, do you guys like venison? And I said, eh, Deb, not so much at all. Um, but yeah. And he said, I've got some, some sirloin steak, venison steaks that I'd love for you to have. And I got some, some hamburger. And I said, Go ahead and bring it. And so uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, I have cooked, uh, I grilled sirloin, uh, venison sirloin steaks, uh, and we had them for dinner two different times. Really good stuff. The, the, the whole conversation was, you know, it all starts with Deb, just taste it, just taste it. And you know what she said about these steaks? She said, that's not bad. That's not bad. She ate it twice. That's not bad, right? Taste it. The, this whole concept of taste it is the theme for this series of messages that we've started to encourage you to dive into scripture and to begin to read the Bible on your own, maybe for the first time. Just try it. Just try it a little bit. Taste it and see what happens. Um, we've, we've, uh, we've issued kind of a 90 day challenge, a double dog dare challenge to say, we, we want to challenge anybody who can to, to read through the entire Bible in 90 days. It's going to take somewhere between a half hour and 45, 50 minutes a day to do that. We got a whole bunch of people who are doing that. And I, I just want to say to you today, if you've started that, keep it up. Even if you're behind, don't get discouraged. Maybe, maybe just jump into to where we are today and, and kind of catch back up and go from there. Um, if you're not doing the 90-day challenge, that's cool. But start to read scripture. Spend some time. Get into a different kind of a plan. Maybe, maybe say, you know what? I'm going to try and read for the first time one of the Gospels. I'm Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. The story of Jesus. I'm, I'm going to read that and read it straight through beginning to end over, over a, a few days or over an afternoon. Maybe, maybe you'll say, you know what? I'm going to do the thing and read the five Psalms and one proverb every day and, and in a month to read through all of Psalms and Proverbs. My encouragement today to you is to taste it, to just try it and, and start that process. Um, I mentioned in first service in, in our life group, we had, we had probably the most animated conversation we've had with lots of people involved in that this past Wednesday night because we got lots of people who are reading scripture and, and going, wait, 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 wait. I've got questions about all this stuff that's happened in, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and, and just trying to figure that out. Um, let me just encourage you as you read, I, I mentioned this two weeks ago, when you start to read, pray a prayer before you start that just says, God, speak to me as I read. Lord, just speak to me as I read and, um, and see what happens. Um, I, I've been thinking in, uh, about uh, an illustration to say, well, what's, what's it look like to try and have a relationship with God without reading the Bible? Um, is that, is that possible? Can you do that without ever reading the Bible? And the best picture that I can give is, um, it's kind of like going into a dating relationship and the only time that you ever spend together is Friday night at a movie theater surrounded by teenagers watching a movie. You're, you're there together and you're getting a little bit and you may be having some interaction, you may hold hands and that kind of stuff. But the depth of the relationship isn't going to happen until there's an opportunity to really communicate and really um, have them speak to you and you speak to them. That's, that's what 
Uh, reading God's Word does. It opens that up. What I want to do this morning is just kind of give you an overview of, of where we are in the 90-day challenge. Um, if you're in that challenge, what you're going to read this next week, and I hope by doing that, that, uh, that maybe even if you're not in the challenge, that you might say, man, i got to go read some of that stuff because I didn't know that all was in there. So this week, if you're doing the 90-day challenge, you're reading Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, four, four different books. Let me just give you kind of the 50,000-foot overview of those four books. Deuteronomy is the last book of the law in the Old Testament. So it's the last book of the laws that are there. It, um, it is the, the, it's Moses speaking to the nation of Israel. They've been wandering out in the wilderness for 40 years, and they're ready to go in the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is kind of like the dad conversation with his kid when they're getting ready to go to college. Or they're getting ready to get married. And, and, he, and the dad is saying, don't forget, I told you this, I told you this, I told you that. You know what? I haven't told you this. Pay attention to this. Um, that, that's kind of the conversation. Because in, in Deuteronomy, Moses restates a lot of the laws that you've already read in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. But then he adds some new stuff that's in there as well. But it's a constant reminder to, um, to the nation of Israel to say, um, God loves you. He has a plan for you. He wants to protect you. You need to listen to what he's, what he's told you. You need to obey his laws. Because when you go into this land, if you do that, it's going to be great. And if you forget, if you don't do that, it's going to be a problem. And, and Deuteronomy ends with Moses giving uh, kind of this final challenge to the nation of Israel. Because he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And, and, he, and he, he finally says, you know what? There's this separation. You choose this path and there's one set of consequences. You choose this path and there's a different set of consequences. And then at the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses walks off into the mountains and dies. The book of Joshua is the account of Joshua who takes over for, for Moses after Moses is dead and leads the nation of Israel into the promised land. Joshua, uh, Joshua's incredibly fun to read because there's lots of stories, there's lots of battles, there's some spies, there's intrigue, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. There's the, the power of God happens in, in miraculous ways in the book of, of Joshua. And, and then there's a section in Joshua that's actually kind of boring. I, I'm allowed to say that, I guess. Um, because, because once the nation of Israel comes in and they fight their battles, um, God says, okay, this is the land that I promised you, and here's how we're going to divide it up. Here are the boundaries for the nation, or for the tribe of Benjamin. Here are the boundaries for the tribe of Naphtali. Here are the boundaries for the tribe of Zebulun. And unless you're just really a map guy that likes to be in the details, you'll kind of go, oh, that's good. That's good. That, just read through it. That, that, you know, it, it'll be a step. But there's, this, there's a section in Joshua that's, that's that way as well. Um, the, uh, there, there's, there's some incredible things that happen in Joshua. There's a, there's, um, spies that, that go into a city and a prostitute, a prostitute saves the spies and ultimately encourages them. Uh, really, really cool thing that, that happens there. And, and then Joshua finishes with Joshua giving this, this closing challenge to the nation of Israel as he's ready to die to say, you know what? There's choices. If you choose this way, there are consequences. If you choose this way, there are consequences as well. The book of Judges is the history of the spiritual leaders that God raises up for the nation of Israel once they're in their new land. 
Um, God raises up judges, and they're not judges like we think in, t- in terms of sitting with a gavel and making decisions. They're judges that really are the spiritual leaders for the nation of Israel. And, um, and judges is, is incredibly cool because it, um, it, it tracks what that looks like, and there's this pattern that exists over and over again in the book of Judges. Uh, here's, here's what happens in, with virtually every judge and, and almost every chapter. The nation of Israel will start to worship idols and, for, and forget God. They stop paying attention to God. And when that happens, God removes his protection from them, and a, and a nation will come in and conquer them and persecute them and oppress them, and it'll be horrible. They'll steal their crops. They'll do all kinds of stuff. And the nation of Israel will, will say, God, help us. They'll turn back to God and cry out to him. And God then, in turn, will raise up a judge who will turn the nation of Israel back to God, and they'll repent, and um, and and. Um, God will hear them and respond and will remove the oppression and everything will be good as long as the judge lives. And then the judge dies and then they fall back into the same trap and and repeat that same process over again. Um, Let let me just show you, demonstrate that for you. This is Judges 3. This is uh, with a judge whose name is uh, Ehud and and the oppressors are uh, the ki- the king of Moab, um, Eglon. This is verse 12 in, in Judges chapter 3. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And then the, the rest of the chapter tells the story about the, the interaction between Ehud and Eglon. And uh, at the end, Eglon is, is killed. Um, and, and verse 30 says, That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. There's some things you need to know about judges. Judges, if, um, if we're back to the movie theater kind of thing, judges would come with a motion picture rating that's either, it, it, it kind of rotates between PG-13, R, and NC-17. Because in judges, there's some stuff that it, that's incredibly graphic and gory and horrible in terms of the stuff that happens. As a kid who grew up in church, um, adolescent boy, Judges was like, I'm all about this because it was battles and fighting and blood and gore and then stuff that I just didn't really grasp what it was talking about at that point in time. But now as an adult, when you read it, you think, man, they were a mess. They were just so far from God, so far from what, what's right. Um, there's all kinds of drama and intrigue in Judges. So judges starts with a, with a king who, who, when he wins his battles and, and, and takes over other, other uh, kings, he cuts off their thumbs and cuts off their big toes and makes them hang around the palace because they can't do anything, they can't run away, they're dependent upon everybody. Just, just a weird kind of thing. There's a, there's a story about this guy, Ehud and Eglon is, is actually the story. Um, the king, Eglon, is, is just incredibly fat, like rolls and rolls of fat. And Ehud comes from God and goes to see him, and, um, and he hides a dagger on him. And even though they frisk him, um, Eglon's servants don't find it. And um, so Ehud goes in to see See the king in his chamber and takes out the dagger and, and stabs him and kills him. And Eglon is so fat that his fat rolls over the dagger and it sticks in him and you can't see the dagger. 
You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? It's very interesting stuff. And then to make Matt, to the, the rest of the story that's just as kind of incredible, when, when Ehud leaves, he tells his servants, you know what? He's in there going to the bathroom. And so the, his servants, um, Ehud escapes, and his servants uh, leave him there thinking, man, he's going to the bathroom for a really, really long time. But he's a big guy, so, you know, uh, who knows? Um, and so uh, Ehud ends up escaping and getting away, and Moab is defeated because Eglon is dead. Um, there's, all, there's just some really interesting stuff that happens in, um, in Judges. Um, in, an, in another story that's there that we'll talk about in a, in a little bit, there's, there's this guy who's, who's oppressing Israel and, um, and they do battle and he's trying to escape from, from the Israelite army and he runs and hides in this tent and this woman talks him into, uh, just, uh, resting there and she, he lays down on the ground and falls asleep because he's so exhausted. And while he's sleeping on the ground, the woman takes a stake out and drives it through his temple into the ground to kill him. Really interesting stuff, right? The, the Bible's all nice, good, really interesting stuff. Um, the, there's the story in, in uh, Judges about uh, the Israelite army that gets pulled together to go into battle and that has 32,000 soldiers. And God says, that's way too many because I'm the one who's going to win the, the battle for you. And so God reduces the army from 32,000 to 300 men. And those 300 men defeat an army of 135,000 soldiers. The power of God is on display in Judges in an incredible way. There's a story of a judge who kills a lion with his bare hands. And then in really the, the NC-17 part of, this, of uh, Judges, the, the last few chapters, there's, there's this story of, of, uh, of a gang rape that's fatal that lasts an entire night that ultimately the woman who is, is uh, raped uh, dies. And, um, and as a result of that... Um, they, they carve up her body and send it to the 12 tribes of Israel, a different piece of her body, to 12 different places to say, this cannot go on anymore. We cannot continue to live this way. And the nation of Israel comes together and cleans house at that point in time. Um, the, the big theme that's there in Judges, the big theme is that, that the nation of Israel... Um, turns their back on God. They begin to worship the idols that are around them and God removes his protection and they end up in a mess. They end up oppressed. They end up um, beaten up. They end up uh, almost destroyed. And then they turn back to God and when they turn back to God, God responds and rescues them, provides a way out. And then they live in harmony as long as they're serving God. That's the big theme that's there in Judges. There's one, there's one other thing that, that I think that, that's there that I, I want you to, if you're reading this week, to see. And, it, and it's this. God gave very specific instructions as they moved into the promised land that the nation of Israel should eliminate, eradicate, wipe out all their enemies. That they should just get rid of the people out of that, uh, out of that part of the country. And they don't. And God says, you know what? Here's what's going to happen. If you don't, if you don't drive those people out, you're going to get sucked into their idol worship. You're going to begin to think like they do. You're going to begin to value the same stuff they do because you're, you're intermingled among them. And the nation of Israel doesn't do it. And exactly what God says is going to happen happens. The, the biography of Ruth is a completely different type of story from, um, from the book of Judges. 
Ruth is this story about this, about this woman who is, um, who's widowed, who's faithful, uh, who, uh, who God in her life does some stuff that's upstream of the story of God of what's going to happen. Ruth ultimately becomes the great grandma of Israel's most famous king, King David. Um, it's a story of her commitment to her mother-in-law. Even in the midst of incredible grief and poverty and the fact that God brings what the scripture call a kinsman redeemer, God brings a person in to redeem and save Ruth and restore her in a way that's incredible. That's, that's the story of Ruth. Um, the uh, I, uh, two things I want to I want to just kind of share as as we dive a little bit deeper in into uh, those four books in particular into the book of Judges this morning. Before we get there, l- let me let me just say this: when you read those four books from the Bible, one of the things that is striking when you really think about it is this: the impact of women in God's story is absolutely revolutionary in history. At this point in time in history, women are, are second-class citizens. They're kind of an afterthought. They, they don't have really any value at all. And when you, read these four, uh, when you read these four books and begin to see God's story lived out, man, there are some women that are key parts of that. In Joshua 2, there's this woman who's a prostitute named Rahab. And the spies come to, to say, are, God, are you, you going to be able to, to help us? Are we going to be able to win this battle? And Rahab hides these spies. And ultimately she says to them, ultimately she says to them, you know what, we've heard about your God. And, and that he's the true God. We've heard about his power. And, and here's the deal, I'll hide you. But would you spare me and my parents and my, my siblings and their families? And, um, and the spies say, yeah, absolutely. And Rahab, God, God uses Rahab to encourage the nation of Israel. This prostitute who's like as far away from God as you can think is possible. God uses Rahab to help tell the story of the nation of Israel. And ultimately, she ends up becoming an Israelite, marrying into the Israelite nation. And she becomes an ancestor of King David. And ultimately of Jesus as well. Rahab's cool. Uh, Deborah is is a judge. And um, when when people talk, uh, when people say about uh, about people who believe the Bible, oh man, I could never do that because of their low view of women. Because they have this low view of women. Um, it's not the case at all. Look in Judges chapter four. There's um, these are the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel as they move into, uh, into the promised land. Let me, let me just read for you a description of what happens with Deborah. Uh, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at this time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah is like the chief justice of the Supreme Court. She has all the power to decide what happens within the nation. Um, Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, soldiers, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera. Sisera is the bad guy, the, the king that's oppressing him. The commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak, her general, says, Look, Deborah, if you go with me, I'll go. 
If you don't go with me, I won't go. And Deborah says, certainly I'll go with you. But because of the course that you're taking, the fear that you have, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And that's ultimately what happens. Deborah is this incredible leader for the nation of Israel. And the story that I told about the guy that runs away from the battle, ends up in the tent, ends up with a stake going through his head. Um, The woman, uh, the lady's name is Jael. Um, she's, she's just a woman there that recognizes what God wants her to do. And, and she takes, uh, Sisera's life, kills him. Israel wins the battle. Um, and, and God restores the nation of Israel back to him through that. Rahab, Deborah, Ruth, uh, Ruth, the story of Ruth is such an incredible story. Um, because Ruth's mother-in-law is named Naomi. She's married and her husband dies. She has two sons. They're both married and both those sons die. And Naomi says to her daughter-in-laws, you know what, you guys just go home because they're not, her daughter-in-laws are not Jews. They're not Israelites. And so she says, just go back to your people. We've got nothing to be able to give you. We can't take care of you. And Ruth is the one who says, um, famously, if you've ever heard this before, Ruth says, no, 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 no. Where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And Ruth stays with her even though they haven't anything. They don't have any visible means of support. God takes care of them. They're, they live in the grief of having lost their, their husbands, their father-in-law. Um, they just have each other and they're impoverished. They don't have anything. They, they walk through the fields to find grain that, that is just left there so that they can have enough to eat. And in the story of Ruth, there's this picture of ultimately what Jesus does for us in that, that God provides a, a redeemer for Ruth and restores her. A, a man comes and marries her and she becomes a key part of the heritage of King David and Jesus. The impact of women in God's story is incredible and it's far different than what, what's happening in ancient history at this time. Here's the, here's the thing I really want us to focus on for the next 10 minutes or so. It's, it's this. When we believe, this is from Judges, when we believe everyone gets to choose what's right and wrong for themselves, it ends up creating a disaster for us. When we believe that we have the right to choose what's right or wrong, it ends up making a mess. There are two verses in Judges that are identical, word for word, identical. Judges 17 and Judges 21 both say this. In, in um, those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel would turn from God. They would turn to idols. When they were doing that, they were rejecting God. They, they were choosing to say, this, we think that this is better. We think this is right, and this is what we have the opportunity to do. They were rejecting God, even though Moses had given them very specific instructions. Don't do that. Don't, don't serve those other gods. Don't listen to them. Don't in, be involved in their worship. Moses had given laws that were designed to protect and to shelter and provide for the nation of Israel. And Israel basically said, no, no, you know what? We know better. We know better than you do, God. Then end result was always disaster. When we declare that we know, when we determine what's right and wrong in our lives, when we make ourselves the final judge of what's right and wrong, 
we declare our independence from God. We, we say, essentially, God, yeah, I know you're there. I know that you've said that stuff. I don't care. Because I have the ability to decide what's right and what's wrong. We, we say to God, I, I don't need you. We essentially take the place of God. We, we put ourselves not just at the level of God, we put ourselves above God. And yet, you know what's funny is we know intuitively that can't be right, right? Everyone can't do what's right in their own eyes. That, that It'll only create chaos. That's why we have law enforcement, right? Because everybody wants to do what, what they want. That's why we have a military. That's why, that's why we have em, employee manuals and codes of conduct, because everybody can't do whatever they think is right in their own eyes. There has to be a higher authority. The question is, who determines what's right or wrong? Proverbs 14 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. Jeremiah 17 says, The, heartful, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Scripture says we don't, we don't have the ability to choose right from wrong. That's why it's so important for us to dive into Scripture, to taste it. It's, it's why the, the encouragement to begin to read the Bible on your own is so critical. We can't trust ourselves to know what's right. The nation of Israel proved it. You know, they, they say that, that uh, FBI agents that, that work on counterfeiting... Um, the way that they determine, the way that they find, the, discover, counterfeit uh, cash is by studying the real thing, not by studying counterfeit. They don't look at counterfeit bills in order to be able to find counterfeit bills. They look at the real stuff, the, the, the stuff that's the model and the standard, and that's how they determine it. We know, we know that we can't live um, determining what's right or wrong. I, I can, I can um, demonstrate that for you. I can, I can give you evidence of that with two words. Church softball. Um, anybody ever played in a church softball league? Um, I, if, if you're new to following Jesus, and if you're here to church, please just don't listen to this because it'll be so discouraging. Because um, i got to tell you, church softball is the worst place in the world to try and play softball. It's, it's the place where there's the most bickering, the most fighting, the most cheating, um, the most anger. Um, it's, it's horrible. Like, church softball is the place where fist fights happen. It, it's, it's crazy. Um, there was one church softball league I was in that the, the churches all decided nobody wanted to spend any money, so you know it was free. So we didn't have any money for the softball league. And, and so the rule that year was everyone provides their own umpire to ump for their team. So they're calling balls and strikes. They're calling stuff that happens. How do you think that worked? It, oh, man. I, it gives me the shakes just to think about it. It was horrible. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We can't live that way. There has to be a higher standard. What's difficult is that we live in a country right now where right and wrong is being redefined every day by our courts 
and politicians. The values of our culture have changed dramatically in a generation and even probably more rapidly in the last five years. Johnny Erickson Tata said this, and gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applausible. Understand this, when you embrace our culture, when, when you say, I want to assimilate our culture that we live in, the lines for what it means to follow Jesus gets incredibly blurry. We get lost in trying to, in trying to sort that out. Because the measure of what's right and wrong cannot be determined by culture, but by what God says in his word. Where there is clarity, we cannot hedge no matter what culture says. I love this quote from Anatoly France. I, I've used it for a whole bunch of years. When 50, if, if 50 million people do a foolish thing, it is still a foolish thing, right? It doesn't matter if 51% of our nation says this is acceptable or unacceptable. There has to be a higher standard. If 50 million people do a foolish thing, it's still a foolish thing. When, when we rationalize away scripture and say, yeah, God said that, but mm, I, th- I don't think that's really what I think. I don't think that's what I really believe. We end up in the middle of a spiritual lake on thin ice as the temperature just gets warmer and warmer. Let me, let me get personal just for a few minutes with some application to this message. Is my view of myself shaped by what God says about me or what culture says? How do I see myself? Is it based on what God says or what everyone else around me says? Do I find my value in their perspective or what God says? Is, is my view of when it's acceptable to not tell the truth driven by what God says in his word or by what's convenient or what has the least negative consequences in my life? Is my view of what I declare on my income taxes determined by what I actually earned or by what can, I know can be tracked by the IRS? Is my view of what's acceptable in an intimate physical relationship, is that determined by my desire, by my hormones, by, what, by what's most convenient, by what society says is okay, or by what God in his word says? Is how I treat others determined by how much I can gain from them or how much pain they have inflicted on me or what they look like or whether I like them or not? Or does God tell us in his word how to treat people, everyone around us? And does that trump everything else that everyone else says? If you're a teenager the, the, the question is, do I listen to my mom and dad's instruction and advice and follow it because that's what God says? Or can I dismiss it because they're old and out of touch with what it's like to be a teenager in 2019? Do I make sure that I get revenge on people who hurt me so that they suffer too? Or do I trust that God will take care of it in his timing and on his terms? Do I eat... And drink and lay around because I want to 
and because it feels good, frankly? Or do I believe what God says, that my body is the home for his spirit to live in me? And that means I need to take care of my body. Do I really trust God to take care of me? Or do I trust my savings, my retirement account, the equity in my house? At the core of of this idea that everyone did what was right in their own eyes is a belief that we can define what sin is. We can determine that. But take a step with me, if you will. If sin is what separates, separates us from God, if sin means to miss the mark, does man have the right to define what sin is? Or does God, who's holy, does his word win? If we're serious about following Jesus, about being changed by Jesus, about being committed to the mission of Jesus, we have to be serious about knowing him. And the way that we know him is through his word. We don't have the freedom to determine what's right or wrong. Jesus, just literally hours before he was, uh, before he was crucified, was praying for his followers. He was praying for us. And Jesus said, sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. The whole idea that we get to choose right and wrong, that we get to decide what's right and wrong, frightens me. Because I know that one day we will all stand before God. And we will give an accounting for our choices. We will try and, ex- and explain why we chose to rationalize away the truths that were clear in God's word. It reminds me of the famous quote by Abraham Lincoln about lawyers. He who represents himself has a fool for a client. So what do you do with today's message? What are your action steps? This series is designed to, to really encourage you, to drive you to read in the Bible to get to hear directly from God's word. So, so do that. Dive into some kind of reading program. D- uh, jump into the 90-day challenge. Read one of the gospels from beginning to end. Read five, five uh, psalms and a proverb every day of the month. Um, like my experience with venison, it may grow on you. And you may say, this is really incredibly good. Uh, sec- second thing out of these, in terms of takeaways, guys, don't be dismissive of women. Recognize that God is willing to use them to tell his story just as much as he uses men. And women, don't strive to be powerful and to fight for your rights. Strive to be faithful to God and trust that in that faithfulness, God will raise you up to tell his story um, in whatever way he chooses. The third thing is this. Don't accept what society says to determine what's right or wrong. Beware, beware, beware when you hear yourself say or when you in your mind think, I know what God says, but we've said each week that we need to be looking for where Jesus is in the middle of God's story. And let me just say, in in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, Jesus is there paving the way. There's the picture in Ruth of the kinsman redeemer, the one who redeems, who takes us out of our poverty and fixes everything, restores us into relationship. Jesus is there. Jesus is there in Deuteronomy, in those laws that are designed to protect us and keep us holy, and designed to help us live in harmony with the people around us. Jesus 
Jesus is there. Jesus is there in Joshua and Judges when, when there's this clear command to say, you know what, um, get all that junk out of your life because it'll be a trap. It will ensnare you. Jesus, Jesus is there. The bottom line is this. We all have to decide what, we, what we're going to do. We all have to decide whether we believe we have the right to determine what's right or wrong. Let, let me just close with these words that Moses gave the nation of Israel as they're ready to enter the promised land. See, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Joshua, as he's ready to die, gives his final charge to the nation of Israel as well and says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, there's incredible clarity. I think for us today, I hope it's there. God, may we accept you at your word and follow you and not be swayed by anything that's around us. God, help us. Give us strength. Give us courage to make changes. God, um, Help us to not get distracted by Satan as we seek to read your word as, as we get there. Help us to not get distracted and get away from it. Speak to us and show us who you are, Lord, that we might choose today to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.